0: Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, Welcome to the third in the the new HKS Gender and Security Seminar Series. Um, Thanks, everyone, for coming out this afternoon, especially at this very busy time of year. Um, My name is Dara Cohen, and I'm an associate professor of political science here at the Kennedy School, and I teach and research on issues uh, relating to the causes and consequences of war and have a particular interest um, at the intersection of gender and political violence, which is why I um, have spearheaded this uh, new seminar series. The seminar series has covered issues of national security in the fall, and in the spring we'll cover issues relating to international security. Um, and we will continue to feature both academic speakers and also speakers from the policy world. Um, The academic speakers have tended to speak about some of their new um, research or their research in progress as Professor McKenzie is today, Um, and policy speakers will discuss some of their perspectives on contemporary policy debates. Um, Our theme for this fall is focused on women serving in combat roles in militaries. Um, And we will continue to hear about that topic today with Professor McKenzie's talk. Um, I'd also like to thank the four research centers around the Kennedy School who have sponsored today's event, both supporting us financially and through the work of their amazing staffs to help um, these events happen. Um, That includes the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, the Carr Center for Human Rights, um, and the Women in Public Policy Program, which is um, where we are right now, in their beautiful conference room. Um, Today, we are recording this seminar, um, and it will be released as podcast. Um, And so we today are welcoming uh, WAPS online podcast community and are very pleased that uh, today's talk can reach beyond just the walls of this room. Um, So without further ado, I will um, introduce today's speaker. Um, We're so glad today to welcome Professor Megan McKenzie. Uh, Professor McKenzie's research bridges feminist theory, critical security studies and critical development studies. She is originally from Canada, um, and she is also a former postdoctoral fellow here at um, jointly. She was a fellow jointly between the Belfer Center and the Women in Public Policy Program at the Kennedy School. Um, she has published dozens of articles on topics relating, ranging from sexual violence and war to truth and reconciliation commissions to issues of gender in the military. Her first book was called Female Soldiers in Sierra Leone, Sex, Security, and Post-Conflict Development, and that book featured interviews with over 50 female soldiers in Sierra Leone. Um, and her second book uh, is titled Beyond the Band of Brothers, the U.S. Military and the Myth that Women Can't Fight. Uh, And that book garnered international attention and widespread praise and was reviewed in a number of outlets including the Washington Post, The New York Times, Mother Jones, and The Atlantic. Uh, Foreign Affairs called it a rigorous contribution to debates on women in combat. Um, so our plan for today is that Professor McKenzie will speak for about 45 minutes, and then the remainder of the time um, will be just open uh, for questions from the audience. Um, we will end at uh, at 4, not at 4.30, I think that was on some of the posters, so it will be an hour and a half total. Um, so And please in general just hold your questions to the end, um, unless there's a kind of a brief clarifying question. All right. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor McKenzie today.
2: Thank you very much, Dara, and thank you so much for inviting me. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here, especially in this space at WAP. Um, The Women in Public Policy program is very special to me. I was a joint fellow here in 2008-2009, and it was such a fantastic year. And it really has continued to, my time here has continued to sort of shape my scholarship. And I always sort of feel welcome and happy when I'm in this space. Um, So thank you to the Women in Public Policy Program, but also thank you to the Belfer Center, the Ash Center, and the Carr Center for their sponsorship um, of the the, um, series. Um, And thank you all for being here. Um, So today um, I'm going to look at this question of whether um, the integration of women into combat roles uh, leads to equality. I should start by saying that this is really early days and sort of a new phase of my research. And a lot of um, my talk today will be drawing on interviews that I've done with um, two different cohorts of, I guess, the first women to be uh, part of combat roles. So one group is, um, uh, we're part of cultural support team uh, operations, so CSTs. Uh, And these were women, these were all female units that were attached to special forces and ranger units in Afghanistan. So they have a very specific um, experience. And then I've also spoken to women who have been integrated into the first classes of infantry roles in the US since the policy has changed. So they have different experiences and different backgrounds, but I'll try and draw out some of the similarities. Um, And I have to say that these um, interviews uh, that I've done Uh, with about 42 women so far have really been just incredible, Uh, have changed sort of a lot of my thinking about women in in combat. Um, And I think for most of my career, I've been interested in in thinking about how we can um, listen to different stories and understand war. Uh, and service in a different way if we talk to women and if we talk to uh, people who, whose voices aren't commonly heard. So, so, that's part of the motivation for this particular presentation. Um, but before I get to the answer to that question, um, I have an outline of my talk, but. <laughs> um, I think there's three um, main reasons why I think the issue of women in combat has sort of broader political significance outside of the military um, and and certainly outside of the US context. So the first is that um, there's really a minority of national militaries around the world that let women serve officially in combat roles, which is quite interesting politically. Depending on how you count, there's about 18 countries that let women serve in in infantry roles. The rest restrict them formally from, from serving in combat roles. So I think that's interesting to understand why do most countries restrict women and what motivates the few countries to change their policy or to have a policy where they allow uh, women to serve. Um, The second uh, thing that I think makes it interesting is that it's an area of rapid policy change. So you'll know that this is a recent development in the U.S. case, um, also Australia. Uh, changed their policy around the combat exclusion officially in 2011 and are implementing that the the UK is revisiting um, their their restrictions on combat um, So it's really an interesting time to reflect on what are the impacts of allowing women into combat roles? What are the lessons learned from other cases and how does this? Um, impact women who are integrated into these roles And finally, just from my research in particular, I think it's a very, you know, women in combat has always been a really interesting space to show how gender bias or ideas we have about what men and women can and should do influence policy. Um, You know, I I started getting interested in women in combat because when I taught international relations and when I taught uh, about gender, it was one of the cases or one of the institutions that. Even if you had students who weren't so sure that ma- gender mattered, when you talk about the military, it's really hard to sort of ignore how gender matters. That you can see that there's gender bias and gender norms shaping behavior. Um, okay. So, um, so this question about um, the combat exclusion. Um, So I think, just to give a little bit of background, because some of you may not be uh, familiar with the, the, po- the backstory to the policy change, but in 2013 here, um, then Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta announced um, that the combat exclusion policy would be reviewed and that the expectation would be to remove the combat exclusion. But what's important to remember um, is at that time he gave all of the services three years to review. Um, their practices, and to come up with a plan of how they would integrate women or make, an exception, make a case for exception to policy. This is important because most of us who are following this, um, <laughs> this story were thinking, well, this is a big loophole, that a lot of the services or many of the roles would be um, that there would be a lot of exceptions and requests for exception to policy. Um, So the Marines, for example, were quite vocal about not wanting women in infantry roles, and they conducted a major year-long study during that period um, that I've written about. Um, But I think the, the expectation during that time was that at least special forces would be closed to women, probably the Marines would keep infantry roles closed, and that it wasn't gonna be a big policy shift. So in 2000, 2015, when then uh, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter announced that all roles would be open to women, no exceptions, it was actually a very significant announcement. Um, and it, it took, I think it, it set um, an important tone, because rather than letting each of the services kind of cobble together their own uh, plan for integrating women, it sort of set a, a tone that all women that can meet certain standards are going to be integrated. And that took leadership, and I think it was also quite, <sighs> yeah, it, leadership in the sense that it wasn't a political slam dunk. Like there were, there were people calling for removal of the combat exclusion, but there were also a lot of vocal proponents of the combat exclusion. And if you ever are you know, just interested in how heated this debate can get, just go on to any online article and read the comment section, <laughs> and you'll see that this is a very fierce debate. Um, And I think um, at the time, it wasn't clear um, when Ash Carter made that announcement that it was going to win him a lot of points necessarily. So it did take um, some leadership. So my presentation today isn't about whether it was the right decision. Um, I think that the decision was right because there was a lot of evidence to show, first of all, that women were already in those roles, that there was no... Combat and support division anymore. Uh, that the idea of, uh, of having exclusive combat roles was kind of counterintuitive when you're thinking about counterinsurgency operations. Um, also, by 2015, we had women receiving combat action pay, um, women who were dying in combat. Um, and so, having a policy that officially didn't recognize their roles, but then all of these other unofficial Uh, ways of recognizing them was definitely out of line. Um, But today I'm gonna focus on this question of equality. Um, And I'll, I'll look, I'm focusing on equality primarily because that was one of the expectations put on the combat exclusion. So there were massive expectations actually placed on removing the combat exclusion. The first is that removing the combat exclusion was going to break the so-called brass ceiling, that it, would re- it was a barrier that would be removed and allow women to get into leadership roles, to officially serve in positions that had been closed to them. Um, another um, expectation that is maybe less talked about is that it would reduce sexual violence. Um, so this was an, an official sort of discourse and this is actually quite a big task if you think about sexual violence in the military. So, I mean, we all have a sense of, the, of um, sexual violence in the military, but it's worth thinking about some of the statistics. So one in four women and one in 15 men experience harassment in the military. And of those that have been assaulted, one in four women and one in three men are assaulted by someone in their chain of command. The majority who report experience negative reprisal, and one in three victims are discharged after reporting within seven months of making the report. So it's a very quick snapshot, but it's important to kind of think about that when you think that there was a hope that removing the combat exclusion would somehow help to address that major, major problem. Um, So former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin um, Dempsey, kind of summarized, I think, the argument here. He said, when you have one part of the population that is designated as warriors and the other part that is designated as something else, I think that disparity begins to establish a psychology that in some cases led to that environment of sexual harassment and sexual assault. I have to believe the more we can treat people equally, the more likely they are to treat each other equally. So that's a big expectation. Um, A fourth expectation um, put on the combat exclusion was that integrating women would be a combat multiplier. So that's very specific language. So for those of you who aren't service members, um, the Department of Defense defines force multiplier as, quote, a capability that... When added to and employed by a combat force, significantly increases the combat p- potential of that force and thus enhances the probability of successful mission accomplishment. So, you know, very high level um, military leaders talked about women as a combat multiplier. And when they were doing this, they tended to focus on women's special c- capabilities in um, interviewing or searching women in places like Afghanistan but also the idea that mixed gender units might be better at making decision making, or better at decision making, or that there may be less disciplinary problems in integrated units. So this sort of overlaps with the last expectation placed on um, the combat exclusion, and this really relates to culture more broadly. So some um, advocates of removing the (coughs) combat exclusion saw the removal uh, the change of this policy as a first step towards broader cultural change in the military. Um, and I mean, I could talk for hours about military culture. I mean, that's what I'm really fascinated in, uh, with um, the military's institution that really defines itself or really thinks about um, things like brotherhood, stamina, honor, um, bravery, and strength but that also really overwhelmingly associates those qualities with women. Um, And more specifically, historically, with straight white men. Um, And so in my book, Beyond the Band of Brothers, I focus specifically on the mythology of the Band of Brothers and this romantic idea of all-male units and how there's this indescribable and unknowable bond between men that's special and that can't be ruined and is completely necessary for combat. So um, I focus on that because in my book I argue that actually all of the objective arguments to keep women out of combat roles didn't matter, that the the arguments around physical standards uh, and the arguments around cohesion were kind of irrelevant, and that at the end of the day, a lot of the arguments that came forward were these emotional, really, commitments to the mythology of the Band of Brothers. And um, interestingly, um, James Mattis, current Secretary of Defense, for the policy changed around women in combat, um, was, when he was explicitly asked, well, what if women can meet the same standards as, as men, he's quoted as saying, that's not the point. And then he went on to talk about his emotional reserva- reservations about women in combat and the unique um, and sort of primitive nature of combat units. So I think that's you know this is really important, like an important point because I think we assume that, especially um, military policy is sort of grounded in objective facts and research, but actually emotion and stories shape uh, a lot of the the a lot of this policy debate. So for those focused on uh, military culture, uh, the fact that women were officially excluded from Um, combat long after they had served unofficially um, was a sign of sexism and patriarchy. We're really trying to focus on, actually, this is about institutional um, sexism. Um, And there's really a spectrum, I guess, of cultural arguments, and this is where I I talked to um, Derek Cohen's students this morning about um, some of my work the spectrum of cultural arguments, sort of on the hopeful side, that maybe this policy change is the first step towards broader change that's so gonna be great, not just for women, um, but for other groups within the military that are not straight white men. Um, and then there's sort of, on the full other side of the spectrum, those that are you know, less hopeful about the military and its potential to, do, to change and be inclusive. Um, and so I think it's important to think about this spectrum of arguments and, and all of the arguments because it's a lot of weight put on one policy change. And it's actually a lot of weight put on a policy change where the policy actually more aligned with reality. It, wasn't co- it was of course opening some uh, new jobs open to women, but there was, you know, it was in some ways making policy to align with something that already was happening in reality. Um, And what I think is interesting, so this is just to give you a sense of, I looked at all the Breaking the Brass ceiling headlines and there were too many to fit on the slide without making it look messy, but (laughs) you get the sense um, of the Breaking the Brass ceiling narrative. But what's interesting if you take a step back from these arguments, is that they really fall into two categories. So the first two I think of as the equal category that If we can just get women into equal positions with men, things will be better, right? They will get into leadership roles. Things will improve. um, Sexual violence will reduce. And then the second two are really about difference. You know, women will will join the military. They will bring something different to the table. They'll be combat multipliers. They'll help provoke cultural change. And (laughs) I think what's... What It took me a while to sort of figure out uh, why I found all of these expectations so overwhelming, other than they're quite overwhelming on their own, but that they're competing, right? That this idea of being equal and dif- different are, is impossible and sets out very difficult, not just difficult, but impossible expectations. So that's my main argument today, really, is that these equal difference um, expectations are competing and not only unrealistic but impossible. You cannot expect women to integrate and be equal to men and expect them to be d- different and change the institution. I think th- that is an impossibility. Um, and what I noticed when I talked to women is that they seem very aware of both of those expectations and very weighed down by both of those sets of expectations. Um, They talked a lot about the the sort of expectation to um, integrate and be equal to men, but also that they had to prove themselves as women, that they deserved to be there as women. So kind of um, try and unpack uh, a little bit more this equal difference um, divide. So (laughs) the good thing is when you kind of get lost and you're trying to grapple with something, I went back to some feminist theory that I hadn't read for a long time that was very helpful in thinking through this equal difference divide. Um, And what's helpful is that feminists have been writing about the equal difference divide or the the equal difference double bind for decades um, because maybe some of you are thinking about how the equal difference double bind impacts you in your life. It's not something that's exclusive um, to the military. Um, But there are a couple of features that I'll talk about in terms of a double bind. So a double bind, I think, is helpful in understanding this work um, because a double bind is a set of competing and conflicting requests. That's the first thing a double bind is. Like the request to be equal to men, but also to be different and and bring something different. Um, What's also important to know about a double bind is that it's an unresolvable set of expectations. It's not a dilemma where one choice is better than the other and you just have to figure out which one is best. It's an impossible choice with no chance of winning. Um, So uh, Kathleen Hall Jameson said, in the no-win situation, so she's talking about this um, equal difference, double bind when it comes to women. In the no-win situation, by winning, you lose. In it, women are judged against a masculine standard and by that standard, they lose whether they claim difference or similarity. So again, this isn't something that is exclusive to the to the military. I mean, I think we can think about our own experiences, maybe some of them in the room. Um, but I think feminists have also called for more critical reflections on you know, what is equality? What, do, what are we thinking about when we think about equality? And can we be a little bit critical about um, equality? So feminist um, Eva Kidday argued that women's um, struggles can't simply be focused on equality because it leaves white, middle-class, straight men to set the standard for participation and equal opportunity. Um, And writing about the military, Carol Cohn, who's over at UMass Boston, um, in the early 90s, she wrote this amazing piece on physical standards in the military, and she kind of used this term, the PT protest, to talk about how Actually, all of the discussion around women meeting equal standards to men was just a guise, was just sort of a stand-in that actually when she talked to men, she talked to I think about 40 officers, that it wasn't about physical standards. It was always about something deeper. It was always about like actually this deep belief that women just didn't belong there. And I think you hear that with the Mattis quote, that even if women meet the standard, that's not the point. And I I think Carol was talking about that in the early 90s. So I think feminists have been helpful in thinking about how equality can sometimes be this sort of moving target that actually leaves women scrambling uh, and unable to to meet uh, a particular standard. So again, what I noticed in the interviews and what came through in both sets of interviews was this real uh, pressure that women felt to be both equal and um, different. And I really want to um, to bring out some of the quotes from them and talk uh, about some of the things that they had to say. So I should say that definitely the experiences of these two groups, again, are, are quite different. But I'm going to draw out mostly how they talked about fitting in and how they talked about trying to fit in. Because those, um, their comments around that and their stories around that were actually quite similar. So the first theme in these interviews was um, really the pressure that women felt to represent all women. Mm -hmm. That they really thought that if they didn't succeed, it would be a sign to all of their male peers that no women should be in the military, and that if the media got a hold of some story or some scandal it would be proof to people who thought they shouldn't be there in the first place that they didn't belong and this is a lot you know this is a lot of pressure some of these women are 21 22 years old which doesn't say but you know that is quite a lot of pressure um, for anyone so for example one woman said um, if one of us failed catastrophically, we would be the anecdotal evidence that women don't belong here." Another woman said, "'You're setting the standard for females. All the males that you're in class right now, um, they're going to see you and their first impression about females in the military is going to come from you.'" So I think this is a kind of an overwhelming sense of pressure to sort of, that they felt a sort of a, a, a lot of attention on them. Um, a second theme, really around physical fitness. I mean, most of the, a lot of the discussions I had with women centered around physical fitness, mostly because these women spend a lot of time working out, thinking about how to work out better, worrying about their fitness, um, talking about strategies about how to pack their backpacks to better suit their body shape, etc. cetera. Um, and they're very aware of the need to be physically fit, and not only I think what the quotes will help illustrate is that our idea of objective military physical standards is very disconnected to these women's sense of sort of the moving target of physical fitness and what, where they needed to be. Um, so one of the sub-themes is this theme of overcompensating. So one woman said, I always felt like I had to do one more or better than whatever the guy was doing, just to show him that I was not equal, but not less than. Um, sorry. So to me, that is just doesn't make any sense. It's like this woman feels like she has to do more, not to be equal, but not less than, which I think actually summarizes all of these conversations I had around physical standards that befuddled me. I have to be honest, I didn't even know how to, ask, what, what are you saying? And I think actually, I mean, I don't know how the women are thinking, but I think some of them are processing how they're feeling about physical standards as they're talking, as they were talking to me. So another woman said, if the guys were carrying two, two by 4s I was carrying three. If they were up at 7, I was up at 6.30. If they were in the gym for an hour, I was in the gym for an hour and a half. I always had to do more. So again, I think you see this dilemma of trying to meet the standard, but also trying to outdo the standard, um, and in some cases, the negative consequences of being successful. So I'll let this quote just sit there for a second while I have a drink of water. So I think this quote's amazing. I mean you see here that there's pushback or there's a fear that there's going to be um, negative reprisal for being too successful. Um, and I think, you know, Carol Cohen, again, talked about this in her paper on the PT protest, what seems like simple standards are actually very complicated and, and seem like something that none of these women feel like. All of these women are elite athletes. They all meet they all more than exceeded the, the standards that were set to get them into these roles. And none of them feel confident about their ability to perform physically. Um, so another category, um, sort of broad category, I didn't know how to sort of name it. I just named it Emotional Labor. I, I think it was just sort of these a kind of endless conversations I had with women That capture everything from wanting to be friends or not wanting to be friends, or worrying about um, not giving off any sexual vibes, but not wanting to be to seem bitchy, um, but also wanting to be cool and be make their peers think that they're okay with, you know, sexual jokes, but also not too okay with sexual jokes, and you see them sort of like backing themselves into this this corner that is so exhausting and at the end of the interviews um my co- uh, i should say my I've, I've done these interviews with um ellen herring who have written with before and antonio rico and we spent a lot of time sort of wa- you know wondering what is happening in some of these conversations and it's taken us a long time to sort of unpack and think through how to talk about um, to talk about the work. Um, So, yeah, I'll just leave this for a second so you can have a look. So I think this quote is interesting because it sort of captures the undercurrent of all of the conversations, which is that ultimately some of these women think that no matter what they do, they will not be accepted, and that it it actually, they're trying to to make all of these maneuvers, but they're ultimately a little bit worried that it's not going to be enough. So for example, one woman said, you can't be too rude or or be considered kind of like a a bitch, and you don't want to be too soft or too sweet, because then they can potentially take advantage of you. Um, And another woman said, a lot of women talked about having thick skin. And I thought this is quite interesting because I think you hear it outside of the military context. And I never know, like what does that mean to have thick skin? And it often means something like quite unpleasant, like being willing to take something that you shouldn't be willing to, to take. And so one woman said, they don't want us there anyways. And they were seeing if they could rattle us. They were testing how thick our skin was. In one situation, a guy said, I hope you took a picture of your legs because you're going to miss them. He was just doing it to scare me, obviously. But that was kind of the mindset all the guys that were there had. They were doing whatever they could to torture us and see if they could rattle us. So in here, you have a kind of an example where she's almost framing it as like, well, of course, he's just testing us. It's okay." But also, he's kind of torturing us and trying to make it unpleasant for us to be here. Um, And of course, there was a whole sub-theme of conversations around sexual attraction. uh, fears that women would give off the wrong vibes, and there was a lot of talking about giving the wrong impression. Um, you know, women <laughs> that serve are very aware of the sexual assault rates. Um, and one woman, so for example, said, I never felt like I should be as open about doing hygiene in front of the men. I didn't want them getting the wrong idea. The men wear ranger panties, these little shorts but I've never felt comfortable walking around in those. Um, I don't want them looking at me or looking at my legs and thinking she's here for the wrong reasons. She's trying to look sexy in the field. She's not focused on training. Figuring out how to keep yourself clean and change your clothes as discreetly as possible is something I don't think the men have to deal with. So I think here you you see how this worry about giving the wrong impression goes into operational day to day, you know keeping yourself clean in the field and and doing things that are actually required of you become quite difficult uh, another woman said I don't want them to see me in a non-professional way I know men who are my age if a woman goes out with them in dresses and dresses in clothes that she's going to wear a cl- wear to a club or go out for the night they're going to have a certain idea so I don't hang out with them for the I didn't hang out with them for the longest time and I think that contributed to the sense of not that I don't belong, but that I need to be removed from them. I don't want them to see me as, as anything less than a professional colleague. I do it to myself.
3: And I heard that a lot.
2: The women, you can hear that through the, the quotes. This, this, this thing of, like, I do it to myself, or I, I, think, it's, I think it's something I'm doing um, to kind of like conclude this messy thing that they've just told me. I don't know what's happening. I, I think it's something that I've done. And it comes through in a couple other ones that you'll hear. So what's interesting is that I should say a lot of the women f- said they felt welcomed by their male peers and that they felt accepted by the by the cadre, and then they would also tell these stories. And so I was always trying to reconcile their sort of positive intro and their overall positive narrative with these kind of sub stories that I think they couldn't quite uh, make sense of as well. So this leads to the last two themes, which is Um, the idea of the male standard, and the ultimate fear that this is just not gonna work out, that we are just not welcome here. Um, So I think um, it was clear through the interviews that women felt like they were expected to adapt to the existing institution, Um, that they were expected to meet a male standard, and yeah, that they, they would potentially always be outsiders. So one woman said, "I don't think they changed um, who they were or what they did for us. They expected us to change for them. They weren't going to stop being guys." Um, another said, "The onus is on women. You either fit in or you don't. You can do the work or you don't." Um, so I have a longer quote here that it's really important, and I thought about putting it up, but it's it's. Because of the nature of conversation, there's a lot of dot, dot, dots and commas, so I'm just gonna read it to you. And I I think for me, this quote I'm still trying to make sense of, so I'm just gonna preface that as it's important. Um, So, one woman said, um, she was talking about, um, some of you know, but when you're going through training, if you don't pass through a particular phase, you get recycled. It's called recycled, so you have to go through again. Um, And she said, um, all of us, when she was looking at, Uh, in our armor class, everyone who had to recycle, all of us were either black or female. It was noticeable and all the females wondered, why is it mostly females? We thought maybe it's our voices, it's more distinct. Um, Later when I was talking to a male team member, she later told me it was a white male team member, he told me that there's this superstition that armor doesn't like black guys. He was talking about how they just don't do as well. So now it's basically if you're a minority, Well, if you're a female or you're black, I can't tell you why it's the case. Some say it's confidence. Uh, Females generally aren't exuding confidence as much as guys, so that could be it. I don't know. And she kind of trailed off in that, in that sort of making sense. And I think, you know, for me, I, you know, I did this interview and I, I, I didn't quite understand what was happening. You know, it took me a while, even when I was reading through the transcript, to think that's a really significant moment to think about that in 2017, you have someone openly, a male service member talking about how there's a superstition about black guys in the military. You also have women trying to make sense of her experience by talking about how her voice might be the problem. And so I think that's very powerful. And uh, I think it signals that there's something more than a policy change can possibly address. Um, So this leads to the final theme. Um, And this is, again, a theme that most of the women kind of got to at some point in their interview. And that's this fear that it's never going to be enough, that maybe I will just spend all this energy trying to adapt and trying to be uh, accepted and to succeed, but it might not work. uh, so this is one of the, the quotes that fits in there. Another one said, there were some guys that we just had to accept were never, uh, they didn't want us there and they were never going to. You just kind of accept uh, they will live and we will live and you, let, you just let be. Uh, and then this quote I think <laughs> kind of captures uh, what Carol Cohn was saying in sort of the sense of we are invading their territory. This feeling that not only it's not about integrating women into an institution, it's about women coming and spoiling something that's inherently male. And that, that came through in, in quite a few of uh, the interviews. So to me, I think the only way I've been able to make sense of some of these narratives is through this idea of the equal difference um, double bind. The sort of impossibility of these negotiations, the endless calculations. And actually, the ultimate fear that, you know, as Wendy Brown talked about, the trap of liberal feminism, that actually it's not a dilemma. There is no good choice. Um, And so um, what's difficult is, you know, these exceptional women are spending a lot of energy trying to figure out how to adapt. Um, And it's important to remember that they're highly selective, exclusive, Know, physically exceptional women that are in these roles that are struggling um, to, to fit in and to be seen as successful. So some of them seem hopeful uh, about their careers and about the potential for the institution to adapt. Um, and, and so I think some of them are you know, concerned about what it will take for them to, to, to be successful. And I think listening to these narratives is important because you know they're dedicating their lives to this policy change. They have, they're hoping that the policy change will open doors to them or will, will lead to success for them. Um, and I think their experience tells us a lot about whether integration leads to equality. Um, I think um, if we sort of take a step back from the US case to think about, well, how would we know if integration leads to equality well we could we would assume that if integration leads to equality um there would be some noticeable changes in things like promotion recruitment retention harassment rates over time that's a reasonable expectation Um, so i've been doing work on other militaries that have integrated women Um, to sort of look at and see whether there is any impact over time in terms of these indicators. So the Canadian Defense Forces, for example, integrated women in 1989, um, New Zealand in about 2001. Um, So I've been sort of trying to look at any indicators to think about, um, this just gives you a sense of portion of women, of what happens uh, after integrate women into combat roles. So this is the portion um, of women in the New Zealand Defense Forces by um, service. And you see that, this is when they're officially, policy change in 2001 and officially in 2004, you see that there's nothing significant happening. Um, and again, the policy changes here uh, and this is just one indicator. There are, of course, other charts I could put up around sexual harassment rates and promotion, but they, I can tell you as a spoiler alert, they look a lot like this, where nothing much happens. Um, so, this is kind of concerning, because I think one of the positive arguments is that maybe it just takes time. Maybe it leads to equality eventually. And that there can be, um, I won't tell you all my that um, that uh, it may just be um, it may just be sort of a generational change, or we need more women, or or something that requires a bit of uh, of time. But I think that um, some of the other research indicates that that if we are interested in addressing sexual assault, promotion, recruitment, retention, and military culture. Uh, one, the combat exclusion policy is not the the avenue to address all of those really important issues. Um, So what can we learn from this research? Um, So the first thing I think is that impossible expectations have been put on a single policy change. And I feel like I need to talk about that because I wrote a whole book about why I thought that policy should change. And I still think that the policy was out of touch with reality and help perpetuate a myth that women weren't able to fight or that, or that women ultimately spoiled some sort of romantic um, brotherhood bond. Um, but changing the policy does not is not a silver bullet. It is not going to do anything for sexual violence in the military from you know, my perspective. I actually can't imagine how the policy change would lead to any change in, in sexual violence. What it does do is place a lot of expectations on women who are in these roles uh, for the first time. Um, And I feel quite (laughs) passionate about this work, especially now that I've gotten to know these women. And I've, um, you know, one of the things that we're doing with the research is following up with these women, um, especially the first class of infantry women. So we've interviewed 22 of. Uh, the first women to graduate from infantry and armor roles and we're gonna follow them for 10 years. So that is, you know, is really exciting and I think um, one of the things we're interested in is do things change for them over time? What is their experience? What are their stories? And I feel connected because I, you know, I worry about the sexual violence statistics. I look at the 44 women I've interviewed and I know that likely 11 of them statistically will be assaulted. That is really impactful for me. Um, and I also worry that if these women drop out, because it's a lot of pressure, there will be a whole, whole cohort of people who feel like, well, they just couldn't hack it. You know, We opened up the policy, we gave them the space, and they just couldn't do it. And I think that that narrative needs to be countered with something else. So that's part of what I'm trying to to do with this work. Um, you know I think the the idea of equality and the um, the breaking the brass ceiling argument is really enticing and wonderful. Of course it does open up some things for some women. But I think anytime we talk about equality without talking about patriarchy and sexism, we should get a little bit curious about what, what equality in that context means. Um, yeah. So finally, I think that uh, if the military is really interested, and it seems like from the quotes and the expectations from them, the combat exclusion, that they are interested in addressing sexual violence and some of these broader cultural issues, that they should come up with um, specific policies and actually talk to uh, women about how to solve those issues. Thank you. Mm.
4: Yes. <laughs> uh, thanks for the talk. Uh, I have a question about um, other countries uh, that have well, some kind of conscription systems. So for instance, Israel has a systems, system. So both male and female should serve in the military, and that's a compulsory system. Um, but at the same time, there are other countries who still has a national service, but that's Uh, About only to able-bodied males, not females. So, do you see, have you looked at the cases in these kind of countries as well?
2: Yeah, so I've looked at several different cases and I heard the great seminar, um, was it last month, about the Norwegian Defense Forces and some of the interesting research happening uh, in Norway. And there's always, you know, there's always a Scandinavian case of like some incredible gender integration that just seems unbelievable. Um, but the difficult thing about other cases um, is it's very hard to draw parallels, especially with the IDF or with the Norwegian military. They're so specific and so unique that, yes, there are very interesting things politically happening and I think the Norwegian Defense Forces are interesting because they, um, so they, have, um, integrated training, they have integrated training, they've integrated barracks, they've integrated everything and they've found that that actually does help reduce sexual violence. So. Um, I think there's lessons to be learned. I'm not always sure that direct comparisons can be helpful. Um, can be directly helpful, but but yes, there there are definitely other cases to learn from. Um,
1: I like to consider the U.S. military as a pretty innovative and adaptive and learning institution, so I'm wondering at this point, what can the military do or do better to help women succeed and fulfill their mandates, because that of course translates to mission
0: accomplishment, which everybody wants, and I think everybody would be in favor of that. So yeah. what, what practically and concretely should the military be doing?
2: So I think they should talk to female service members, and they should talk to trans women who are serving, and ask them what they need. And I think... There's really clear from really practical things like, um, you know, women use female urinary devices while they're training, and they have to, you know, women who are in infantry roles right now buy them themselves online and pack them, and so things that are they are going to need, they don't get because it's not something everybody needs. Um, so that's a really basic, like, simple one. Um, I think there are. I, I think it just, the, the simple answer is talking to women who have really clear ideas about what what they need to, and what they need to work. I think women were really clear about not changing physical standards and actually about not having um, uh, female male PT standards that they would like to get rid of that because most of the women can exceed the male PT standards, at least for the infantry, but because they only have to meet the female, it perpetuates this idea that they're not as fit and so it's hard for them to show <laughs> that equalness. So even if they wanted to prove their equalness it's really tricky. So I, I don't think there's a really simple answer I think it's it's um, concerning or I, I find it disappointing that there's not more research being done by the army and why are, you know we're outside scholars interviewing, women about their experiences and, and, and gaining their lessons learned. So I, I would hope that they're doing some more kinds of research. Okay. Sure.
4: Uh, first, I, this is really um, as, I used to be a Marine infantry officer, and was in favor of women in the infantry. And one of the arguments I made to people who opposed it was that it was if you were a good leader, you would be able to make this work. I'm I'm curious, in your research, how much do you attribute problems to the direct junior to mid-level leadership in charge of these integrated units? How much do you attribute to just structural problems?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, what do you think is the answer to that? (laughs) 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 You probably have, you know.
4: Yeah, I mean, so that's been challenged. I think my, my response to that, I'm less confident. Yeah, but I'm also no longer serving, and don't have as good a grip of what the culture and brain environment is right now. So.
2: Yeah, I think that I I think that all of the research that's been done, not just by us but by other scholars, is that, that leadership is important, and any of the research around cohesion says that actually. Nothing about cohesion matters as much as leadership. Like if you have a leader that says everyone needs to get along, then everyone gets along. That is actually all it takes. It's not, very, it's not much more complicated than that, especially in a structure, in an institution that's about hierarchy and following orders. Um, and so I think when you have someone like James Mattis saying that's not the point about physical standards, or when you have, um, we had the quote from Orson this morning um, when he was talking about, cultural support team members um, dropping out of helicopters and like letting down their hair to show that they were women to to the people in Afghanistan. You know, those those are so destructive and they come from leaders and I think it's destructive because it's disrespectful <laughs> to women who it's so we were talking yeah, we were talking about this in class and it's so ridiculous that even on a practical level that a woman would be roping out of a helicopter and letting her hair down on a practical level is ridiculous and then on a on other levels it's so ridiculous and i think <laughs> but those stories it's also so romantic it's just like this idea of this woman coming out and then like putting a scarf on and, and connecting with women in afghanistan it's just so not it's so not what was happening and and so To me, I think that shows the power of emotion and story in shaping the debate, and I think it shows that leaders use that (laughs) to um, kind of keep keep from cultural change. I guess so. I mean, and then on a basic level, one of the things, just uh, sort of to give you some practical um, feedback, um, women (sighs) who are going through infantry training talked about you would know this, op, op orders, on operational orders, and how when they tried to do operational orders, so, t- so to give out orders to their, in in, pro- in um, training to their group, women had a hard t- harder time in the peer evaluations consistently with op orders. And this is like something that's been a problem in ranger school. This is what one of the women was talking about in terms of like, well, maybe it's our voice, or they can't figure out why they are not doing as well in op and they think it's their voice and they also think it's the guys just don't see them as leaders and so it's a I don't that isn't just about women changing their voice that's how do women get into leadership roles or be seen as leaders I I actually it's a really it's a hard question to answer right but I think there's sort of multiple steps in the in the process to kind of look at I I was wondering
0: about the physical standards, whether, I think Secretary Carter mentioned this in his talk, and he didn't want to have that conversation as part of the removal of the exclusion. But are, are the physical standards appropriate for modern warfare as we look at kind of how much people have to carry and, and the equipment, things, and is there a review of that in the military that would equalize the playing field, regardless of gender, for all you know, employees? Yeah, so
2: this is a very heated debate and our former Marine probably has a very good insight into this. I can tell you the two sides of the, arg- two sides of the argument that I hear a lot. So there's one argument that um, warfare is changing, that physical standards were, and this is true, physical standards were developed to measure men's physical fitness. They weren't connected to any particular job task. It's not even about World War II trench warfare. It's, like, it's just very about physical fitness for men. Um, and so there is an argument, and the Canadian Defense Forces completely changed the physical standards to match their job requirements. Um, on the other hand, um, and this comes from women as well, there's the argument that you need to be extremely physically fit, full stop. And so you don't know what's going to happen in war, and. Changing the physical standards at this point, I think a lot of women worry that if we change the physical standards now, it'll be seen as a softening of the standards on their behalf. And so they don't want that. Um, because they feel like they can meet the standards. And it's like, we've, we actually have one thing that it's sort of objective that we can prove ourselves on. So please don't change it. Because then you know, it gives the impression that it's changing for in order to soften. So again, here you—that's the double. That's the double bind, right? I think there is like, where is the where is the right answer in in that um, in that debate? I, I'm not sure. I do know that most of the women I've talked to don't want the physical standards to change. They want one standard, and they want it to be as transparent as possible. Yeah. I mean, the the Marines have the Marines have a new. Um, Set of standards that are more related to infantry, right? What What are the? Um, I'm forgetting the acronym right now. Just
4: so they, I mean, they they divided the annual physical fitness test into two different tests. Yeah. They take each one once a year now. Uh, the 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 new one is slightly more applicable, but I mean, both of them do a very bad job of assessing your ability to do the job of an infantry person. Yeah that's not the, not the real point of that. The point yeah. is to be something that's simple, a simple assessment of general fitness for the entire force. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, the tasks that you're required to accomplish in, say, the infantry officer course, I mean, those are directly tied to the, the entire list of standards for an infantry person's job, and like, the specific weight that you need to carry a specific distance to be able to do a specific task. I think, to me, those are the most the best
3: actual task car you are able to do the job of an infantry person. Yeah. The challenge you got is the load you're carrying is specific to the task you've got here. Yeah. So you might have some task sets that are actually quite a light load. Um, look at some of the tasks that we're doing in Afghanistan, some of the, you know, counter-terrorism tasks and things like that. Um, you're not carrying a huge amount of equipment. You'll have other tasks that you're carrying up to um, about 180 pounds, um, put in US terms. so and guys will struggle with that as well you know it then becomes very much a mental task and the question you asked about how much can you carry um, that's been going on in the military for years you know because however much you carry you've then going to carry water and things to sustain yourself and the more weight you carry the more water you need to sustain yourself through that period so you know it gets to a limiting point we can't simply carry more so but it is really task and mission dependent and like you said you know if you've got a general Task set where you say you know you carry a pack over a X amount of distance over terrain in this time, that's a, you know, a good measure of everyone.
2: Yeah, I mean, some of the ways that this gets trickier, <laughs> even more, is <coughs> for example, um, a le- so we know through some of the um, research around physical standards that women often adapt. Um, particular tasks and carrying to suit their bodies, so their lower body, they use their lower body strength rather than upper body um, and sometimes when they're allowed to make adaptations, that works and that's that's fine um, but in for the Marines for example, women have to sustain a lower body mass in order to meet the standards, so you can only have 25% body fat I think men can have 27 which is kind of counterintuitive since women naturally carry a higher amount body fat and also if you want to carry enough muscle in order to pull that amount of weight and be that fit it's really hard to I I don't know personally but I know from what from what people have told me about the physical centers it's actually very impossible to be that big and and muscly but also to be 25% uh, have 25% uh, body fat is a really difficult um, balance So I think when you get into the minutia of physical standards, it's so interesting. I mean, I find it, and that's why I, um, when I did the analysis of the marine study, so the Marines did this year-long research, $36 million, year-long study, people dedicated their lives to this research. And Ellen Herring and I went through 900 pages of it and found so many um, surprising and unpublished uh, bits of research around physical standards. Like if they would have just done better um, phys- physical screening, all of the women who got injured in the research would have been excluded from the research. That's important to know that d- that didn't get published in the, the Marines uh, four page um, analysis of the research. Also, that non infantry Marines were better shooters than Marines. That was interesting and not published. Also, that women didn't spoil cohesion. Um, also, that their research kind of started to fall apart because people dropped out, and they ended up having groups of you know, high-density groups of women that only had two, and low-density groups of women that had one. And you're trying to conduct an analysis, a comparative analysis, which like you know, I was saying this morning, if I took $36 million and did that kind of research, I would not only be fired, I would probably like, be facing a lawsuit. It's, it's, so, it's such a significant failure. I mean, it's actually used as an example of bad research in a Georgetown University class. Like, it, it is very, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's significant. And it was also, it made headlines until the the broader, the whole research was released, and, and there was an analysis done. Um, so I think the physical standard stuff is so complex, and is, it's important to get curious about, <laughs> anything that looks simple around physical standards, because it, it never is.
0: Again, first, thank you for your phenomenal talk. It was a pleasure to have you back at Wad. Um, a couple of interesting things um, flagged for me in your talk, um, which leads me to my question. So when you described the narrative of how women talked about the challenges and what their experiences were, there was nothing in what you shared that focused on any difficulty doing the job. It was only managing the expectation of others, and predominantly not managing expectation of self. Mm-hmm. And when one is looking at any type of integration, whether it's gender, racial, intersectional, and so forth, there there's the different levers, right? So. Your research focused on how did the women who are integrating and experiencing it experience it and a couple things because the groups when one looks at sort of time and memoriam were all male to then predominantly male. We're looking at women integrating into a force that was predominantly homogeneous not just by gender. And I didn't know if you compared any of these narratives or will in the future to integration of African Americans and other racial groups into the U.S. force. And in much of the policy areas that we study here at the Women in Public Policy Program, what we see is when we don't have effective overall system solutions and system policies, then the default policies that every individual, and in this case, woman, has to figure out how to manage and integrate individually But they're really managing a system's problem with sort of shallow tools that individuals have. um, And then leaves, in essence, the mosaic tiles to actually create what the system's policy should be, which is what you recommended with talking to the women. Mm. Um, Do you see any sort of catch basins taking place in any of the branches to try to put those tiles together to figure out how to help women um, maximize their contribution to the force? Yeah. Good question. Um,
2: I think I know how to answer that. Um, so I think the question about whether there's any parallels between what these first infantry women are experiencing and what um, black service members were experiencing as they were being integrated is very interesting. I don't know. I, I would love to know if there's those narratives available. Um, I know from some of the Work that is available, that the assumptions around African American service members, some of some of it is comparable to women, and some of it is quite unique. So, at the time uh, before integration, um, the argument, one of the dominant arguments, was that white service members weren't going to be able to trust African American men, and that you know when it came to a combat situation, they didn't think there could be that trust. And they didn't think that the bravery would be equal. So there was that sort of, it wasn't a stand, again, it wasn't anything objective or anything you kind of pin down, it was about bravery and trust. And how do you counter arguments about bravery and trust? It's impossible. And so I think that's actually quite interesting when you think about how the arguments around women are actually quite emotional as well and difficult to pin down. Um, and the arguments around transgender service members Again, there's some similarities, but also some very distinct features about transgender service members. I think that what's mostly distinct is that there's just a big lack of knowledge around what being transgender means. And so um, I did some research in this area, and I saw actually the training that was given to, um, to a lot of um, leaders in the military. And it was sort of like an eight-point power, PowerPoint Um, that was confusing (laughs) like you would go through it and feel like I don't know how that would clarify and when I did some interviews with military leaders around transgender service members it wasn't I didn't get a lot of pushback in, in terms of people feeling opposed to integration but there was a real lack of knowledge like there was actually quite a few individuals who didn't know the difference between sexuality and gender identity and sort of basic Medical um, <laughs> medical requirements of transgender service members, and uh, I think that is is very different. And so, um, and in order to, I think, to address each, we need to have these narratives. I don't know how else you would understand how to integrate transgender service members unless you talk to trans trans people. Like, how would you possibly know? I think the one thing about the military because it's such a Distinct institution, they have a very distinct idea of what transitioning means as well. there is like a very, there's a path you go and you you are diagnosed, you you start hormones. There's an assumption that you will request one of, you know, this list of surgeries, and then you sort of come out at the end as the other gender, end of story. And we know that that's not the path of most um, people who are transgender, and that doesn't leave a lot of space for um doesn't leave a lot of space right and so I'm, I'm i'm sort of leading away but i guess um i don't think i'm answering your question no. sorry i'm sorry i got really you're doing great interested in um i think it's sometimes it's difficult to with narratives because i think it, there is no easy policy solution right and that's that's been a problem not a problem, but that's just been the answer for a lot of my research is sort of like you have to welcome and read the messiness of the narratives and see that um, people's experiences you know are diverse and, and you know mean that probably the probably a singular change isn't going to capture all of those experiences. I'm
1: gonna put myself on the list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, most of what you have focused on in this presentation is um, change within military culture. Um, but my interest is whether lifting of the combat exclusion policy might have changes for broader American society. Um, and I'm reflecting in particular on some of the liberal feminist kind of right to fight movements. And their perspective is that in order for women to be seen as true civic equals, women have to at least have the opportunity to make the same ultimate sacrifice that men are asked to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I have sort of a 2 pronged question. Um, one, do you agree with that? And do you expect, even though you haven't found changes within the military, although it it's, hasn't been that long, but um, it's, it seems like your argument was we shouldn't expect to see changes within the military. Might we expect to see changes in sort of broader American society around the equality of, of women? Um, and then second, you mentioned a couple of other cases where we also don't see changes within um, the Canadian military, the New Zealand military, on at least the metrics that you looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about the kind of broader societal metrics? Have, have, women, have Canadian women or women in New Zealand experienced some kind of blossoming of civic equality as mm-hmm. a result of the lifting of combat exclusion in, in yeah. those societies?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question about sort of the flow on effects. And you're right, there were within sort of a, a sort of liberal feminist perspective that, that high hopes placed on this policy change in terms of broader, um, the potential for broader change. And so let me start with something positive. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and this is tricky, be- yeah, I think it's tricky to answer that without. And, and be positive, but I'll start with something positive. So I do think that um, you, know, there, you know that three women have gotten through Ranger School in, in the U.S. and there's women who, that are going through right now, and um, those women getting through Ranger School actually matters in terms of changing public perception about what m- women can do, and it matters in terms of their career tra- trajectories, and it did end some of the debate around physical standards because it's such a difficult outrageous program it's so difficult and everybody knows that there's no discussion about ranger school being soft it's sort of like the ultimate band of brothers tab and so the fact that some women got through is great for a lot of other women who are it opened up a little bit of space for like can we just stop talking about physical standards now like these women got through a mother of three a 37 year old mother of th- three got through that's crazy that's amazing <laughs> and and also just like let's get over physical standards and so there was like a little bit of space so <laughs> there's my positive um and i think any success for women opens up, of course it opens up space. There's always an example we can point to that is inspiring and hopeful and wonderful. And don't we all need it? Like, Lean In is wonderful. But even Sheryl Sandberg is like, well, patriarchy and sexism are also tricky. And that it's not just like, you know, it's not as easy as just open the door and Lean in, you know, and so I think that's the that's the um, that's the important point. Um, You know, like I was saying in your class this morning, when I when I talked about the women who got through Ranger School, I had two um, Marine veterans in an audience who were like, "Yeah, but everyone knows they soften standards for those women," and it was just like, "This can't be happening! How is this possible to sort of have this backtracking?" And so I think there's always space, and there's always um, I think ways that powerful and exceptional women can ex- inspire other women. But I think ultimately, <laughs> you know, patriarchy and sexism and racism are real um, institutional limits that <laughs> that that don't don't go away, um, and that's. Yeah, that's sort of the, we all know that, and, and that requires a lot of work and thinking about. I don't know, that's not a very nice way to tie it up, but, so of course there's some, I don't think there's any kind of quantifiable in Canada, New Zealand, um, flow on effects from the combat exclusion. And certainly even within the military, when I talk to women who are leaders in the, the Canadian Defence Forces. They said, well, after we uh, after we changed the combat exclusion policy, we thought we solved our gender issues. And so they they let you just sort of cut funding for gender research for quite a few years after the policy changed and got lazy about gender because they sort of were like, well, you know, this was the last barrier and things in the military, now we can talk about. And they, they literally said, now we can just talk about diversity more, more broadly. And so gender was sort of seen as like passe or. Um, something that was had been dealt with, and so I think that's important to you know it, it's like a, important not to get lazy about gender and racism. Um, that's the conclusion to my
0: book, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? All right, we can end
1: here. Thank you, Megan. Great. That was